This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, we you know don't normally start this way, but I feel like we might just want to do this cold open a little bit different here this week. And I just want to read uh, an email that actually re- we received by Jordan. Jordan oh, sent this in here for okay. us. You have a very somber tone. All right, I'm ready. I do have a very somber tone. <laughs> Maybe because of a movie that we're going to be watching here this week. Uh, but I, I want to go back to last week. We were talking about Get Carter last week. And something okay. that I forgot to mention that I actually did have written down and just we blew past it. Director Mike Hodges, of course, does Get Carter. Essentially his very first film that he directs. Do you know what he went on to direct afterwards? No. Does the name sounds familiar? Hit it me. Lay it on he me. He did the 1980 classic Flash Gordon. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I can't think of two films that are so completely different than the original Get Carter and 1980s Flash Gordon. <laughs> oh. The... Maybe that's talent. I... That's talent, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, range. It's all about range. He can... Uh portray grit on screen and he can also make people grit their teeth at the campiness mm-hmm. have you watched have you seen that movie sure i don't know there's uh... oh man it is it is great in all the wrong <laughs> ways it's a, not a good movie but no. i have so much fun watching that movie it is so fun so why are we starting uh, our conversation about this movie with that? Just to lighten things Dave, up? Dave, we need something light <laughs> and fluffy at the beginning here. I cannot be dragged down into pessimism and fascism once again in our conversations. I hear your child like <laughs> yelling it's in the background. It's not my kid. So. Helen oh. uh, is having a high school reunion on Zoom like literally right now. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. But, we're going uh, to listen in, folks. That's going to be our hot topic here today. All right. Well. I guess I wish I was listening to Queen and watching some birdmen fly around the sky, but instead we're going to be talking about some some straw dogs. Oh man, what should we do now? Well, we're going to start do clenching. our intro. We'll start, start clenching up, Dave. Start clenching. Pre-clench. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films. It picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm still Dave. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. I feel like that means it's the antagonist of this fiction. Or, I mean, reality that we find ourselves in. Like an absent-minded one, since it hardly makes appearances anymore. It's like just from the shadows, manipulating a puppet, leans in. puppet master. In. Yeah. Although, we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be talking about the film Straw Dogs. Okay, you've had your fun. I'll give you one more chance. And if you don't clear out now, there'll be real trouble. I mean it. This is David Sumner. All his life, he's been running away. 
turning his back on trouble, involvement, and confrontation. Until now. There are five men out there. I know that. He took his wife and fled to an English country town. There was once a time, Mrs. Sumner, when you were ready to beg me for it. Take your hands off me. I'm doing. All right, so of course, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. I think, Dave, just to set the stage, there's two people involved in this film that we should just give that a handle on, a wrangling, if you will, on their careers and our relationships with them. Uh, let's start with Sam Peckinpah, the director, Sam Peckinpah, kind of this big name in American cinema, I would say. Any relationship with him? No, not by name. You know, when I did a brief cursory look, 20 seconds ago, I do recognize a lot of the uh, films that he made. I note that uh, apparently he was not a very nice person. But, no, uh, apparently he was not. I don't recognize the name. I recognize his work more. I'm not sure if I like the work. But, well, according uh, yeah. to Letterboxd, just to call you out here, according to Letterboxd, you gave a four stars to The Wild Bunch, which mm. he directed. Uh, which one's The Wild Bunch? Is that, that is with the... William Holden from Wild Rovers. Yeah. Uh, and it has Ernest Borgnine. Oh my gosh, like four other kind of famous people. Yeah, now I'm thinking... The, the, guy, from, I... uh, the guy from Last Picture Show is in it. The old cowboy from The Last Picture Show yeah. is in it. I'm not sure. I must have mixed it up with a different movie. Maybe The Magnificent Seven. Probably, because I'm... Hold on, I'm going to look at this picture. Nope. I don't think I've ever watched this movie before. So you've lied to Letterboxd. You you need to go and make amends I'm for lying to the Letterboxd family that you watched a movie. Well, you know what I'll do instead? I will revert the rating to a one. <laughs> just to <laughs> just to balance things out. Yeah, yeah. it's st- it stayed too long. I just hold on. Aging a law, Pike Bishop, retire one final robbery. Huh. Let me let me break in here then and just say. Until this week, yes. once again, this feels like I don't watch any films. Well, you've been so busy watching, he's all that on repeat. But I have never seen a Sam Peckinpah movie in my life. So I decided, well, why not I just watch his most famous one, which is The Wild Bunch. Other than Straw Dogs. Okay, yep. So I watched that, and I really liked it. It is also supremely violent. One of the first, what they called revisionist westerns. So mm. instead of it just only being bad people who like get shot and die in the end, in that movie, it does not care <laughs> if you're good, bad, and different. Like everyone kind of gets obliterated by the end. But I did think it was an interesting exploration of like evil and what links men will go to have a moral code sort of thing. There is actually an interesting line that I love that Ernest Borgnine actually does say near the end where him and William Holden are fighting back and forth. William Holden says something like, your word matters. And then Ernest Borgnine says, no, your word doesn't matter. It matters who you give your word to. I was like, oh, that's an interesting little worldview and like thing to explore. And I think that that's what that movie essentially is about, is Mm. who do you give your word to is ultimately more important than you keeping your word. Anyways, interesting movie. I actually really did like The Wild Bunch. But that is really my only other familiarity with Sam Peckinpah. Some of his other movies I do want to eventually watch because, again, they're highly regarded. But this will essentially be my second Peckinpah movie 
Yeah, the viewers can probably hear me scrunching my face when you were describing this idea of giving people your word. Well, you know, we can talk about it later. I don't know. I, just I don't think know if I agree with any that, of it. That, yeah. That's an interesting thing to explore. <laughs> I don't even matter if you care to, if you agree with it. I just think that's an interesting idea to explore. I, I've always hated the idea of uh, intent and promises. And I think we should be focused on what we actually do functionally with those promises. So I don't give a fuck who you gave your word to. You need to act on it. So the concept well, okay. of the word is more important I'm just, than a word. I'm just going down a road like we don't need to get into it because we haven't watched the movie The Wild Bunch. I'm just saying that I think it's interesting whether you give it to, to put this in biblical terms, if you give your word to God or the devil, it does matter who it is that you're going to and promising things to. Mm. And I think that that's an interesting approach to that, to that, eh. I know, outlook. Eh. Eh. Anyways, how about Dustin Hoffman? He's kind of the other big name that's associated with Straw Dogs. Well, we already saw him in Harold and Maude, so... Um... <sighs> no, we Stop it. Stop it. Not all white guys look the same, Dave. Yeah, this would have he been... has the same hair. I mean, they clearly modeled the hair off of du Dustin Hoffman. All right, keep going. I think this is... I forget how I looked at it. I think it's his sixth movie. So he's very Active. young, of course. Uh, well, but it like... took him a long time to break in. I think he's already 30. Yeah, he's 30 something. Yeah. He's 30 something in this movie. But I'm saying like he's very young in his acting career oh, here sorry. right now because 67 is The Graduate. This is only four years later after that. And The Graduate is basically his first movie that yes. he does. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's never made a bad movie, at least as well, we were kind of uh, joking around until 2010. Well, yeah, after 2000, look at 2010 and then tell me if you've even heard of any of these movies that he's been in since that time. Well, I mean, not that we've watched this film, but just to put it in context, if you go to the Letterboxd uh, scroll by rating, mm -hmm. Straw Dogs, which is, you know, considered a great movie, we'll find out whether we agree with that or not, doesn't even appear in his top 10. What are his top 10, Dave? Uh, Graduate Kung Fu Panda, which is a classic. Rain Man. Uh, Chef's up here, which is weird. I wouldn't have put Chef up at the top. Meyerowitz Diaries, The Holiday. Hook is great. Took me a while, the first couple of times, I, real I think to the end of the film, I realized that was Dustin Hoffman. Uh, All the President's Men, Midnight Cowboy, Stranger Than Fiction, Kramer vs. Kramer, Tootsie. I mean, shit. Know what? Again, we I constantly bring this up, how the 70s just feels like this alternate reality. Do you know that Kramer versus Kramer, I forget, is that what, 76, 78? No, I don't remember what yeah, year that I'll, came out. Somewhere. Check. 79. I was going to say 1980. 79, yep. It was the highest grossing movie the year it came out. Okay. If you adjust for inflation, it made as much money as Spider-Man Far From Home. Like, it made so much money in 1979. And there is no way, no way a movie about divorce would even crack the top 25 if well, it was released this, uh, in this year. Marriage story. Are people dumber now or that the machine, not our machine, although we don't know mm -hmm. that yet. I am every machine. The big cultural machine has sort of twisted our expectations of what we ought to spend money on because nobody wants to have discussions. This is the recurring thing that we keep coming back to this season and the fights we kind of keep having i think it is twofold one star wars ruined everything but uh <laughs> no i <laughs> if we didn't get hate mail before we're about to get a lot of hate mail now <laughs> no <laughs> those types of stories are just not released as movies anymore they're released mm -hmm. as miniseries or tv shows 
So one, the mechanism to release though that type of storytelling is just not in a film format anymore. Secondary to that, I think that the movie going experience is much more geared to blockbuster filmmaking. Like that is what's driving people to the theaters. Back in the 70s, this exploration of like what the younger generation, what the hippie movement was interested in or wanted to push against was not being shown on television. And so I think then when television started to say, okay, so like people are going to see this stuff on the big screen. Let's see if we can take some of that stuff and move it onto television screens. I think because there is this mentality is like, do I need to see this in the theater or can I watch this at home? And I think that that's a hard thing to market to people where it's like, well, I can just wait until this is on iTunes or on Disney Plus or whatever, and I'll watch it here. I don't need to go and spend $15 to watch Marriage Story on the big screen. I wonder too, if there is a socioeconomic thing about who the audience is and how much money they're going to spend. So for example, in the 70s, and you love musical theater, the Mm -hmm. type of people that would go to the theater to watch Broadway or to watch a play you know, that's, that was a fairly higher socioeconomic yeah. class. You, you wouldn't very seldom get someone who would grow up in a slum and save for like six months to go watch one show. That's just not who the buying audience is. And so you get both challenging explorations in terms of stories, but you also have a, a vernacular, like a, a language that is uh, set up for snobs. And I think maybe films were more geared towards that in this era and now the buying power is kids and families uh, mm. or people that just want to be titillated and we'll talk about that a little bit here yeah. I think about uh, the culture of violence but it, it's a great thing I mean we're watching challenging films and uh, our scores do reflect that a little bit because we're not used to walking into a theater and having someone rub human dirt on your face and tell you to deal with it and figure it out on your own right. you know that's just not the world we live in right now so that is my very specific king I, I just think too I, 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 I agree with you in part in that yes I think that there is definitely still at least this belief that movies are this artistic format and we're searching for like these American auteurs because we are focusing a lot on American film here and we want to push buttons and we want to be provocative and people are still going to watch these. This is not just like just educated class going and watching these movies. You don't make a movie that grosses <laughs> as much as a Kramer versus Kramer, for instance, well, if it's know. just the educated class going and watching that, it. I don't know. I mean, like if we look at Billy Jack, for example, you know, or we look at Shaft or uh, Sweetbag. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, those are, movies... I think, proving my point. That is not just like educated people going to watch that. That's well, a whole plethora of people going to watch that. But they're in specific forms. They're not the same audience that's going to go and spend money on Kramer versus Kramer sure. or Tootsie. Not necessarily, yeah. Sure. So it is, yeah, there, there's something interesting in that we need a sociologist or somebody that studies sort of uh, cultural makeup of that era. And I brought this up before too, is we both don't actually know how much it costs to go watch a, a film in a theater. I well, mean, I think it, there is a website. I think it's like 550 or six bucks or something like that. I mean, I time. was paying 550. I, I, I mean, I'll Google it quickly. $1.65, Kyle. And this in is the thing. In 1971? Yeah, I paid okay, five okay. bucks, you know, in the 80s and 90s to go watch films. Uh, if I That's true. $1990, right? So it's $1.65. And then we'd have to get a researcher to talk about what the, you know, how much is milk? You know, what are you trading off to go see a film? Because now yeah. 15 bucks buys you a lot of milk, right? I mean, right. Uh, so anyways, all right, keep going. Let's go back to Dustin Hoffman. I just, I've been fixated on this because of the discussions we had this year about 
yeah, who's watching this? And how much does it, you know, uh, yeah, what does it cost to go see a show? Uh, in the last picture show, it's like a nickel theater. There's cheapies, well, you know. True enough, but I think also that one of the biggest things here is okay. Price a dollar sixty five, even in nineteen seventy one, is not that much to go right. and you know purchase something. And there is less distractions. Like we don't have smartphones, we don't have all this like constant access to information. So I'm sure there was those people, and I was the, those people before, <laughs> you know, I got busy as an adult. Who would be like, just roll up to a theater and like, I'm going to go watch two movies today. What's playing? Mm. Great. I'll go watch, watch these two because they're playing right now and I don't really care what I'm watching. So I think there might be a part of that uh, rolled into this as well. Dustin Hoffman, for me, I'm trying to think of like the first thing I would have ever seen him in. Hook probably is the answer to that question, but I, I'm not 100% sure. Oh, Rain Man. Probably Rain Man. I've never seen Rain Man either. Oh, wow. Um, okay. I've seen yeah. clips of it. Like, I know enough and all no, the fine. parodies that It's fine. That you don't have to keep apologizing as a movie expert for all the big movies you haven't actually watched. It's yeah, yeah I haven't seen. I haven't watched Seven Samurai. Yeah. I haven't seen Rain Man. Yeah, I just um, uh, watched Kung Fu Panda 29 times. But, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, I have no, no problem with that. It's I'm trying to think. Seen Hook. I'm trying to think of any of the other big movies that he would have been in in the 80s. Tootsie, I guess. I would have watched Tootsie probably back then yeah. as well. Uh, as I got into films, of course, The Graduate was a big one. I remember watching I Heart Huckabee's in the theater. Mm -hmm. So I remember Dustin Hoffman being in that. It was okay. <laughs> Watch the behind-the-scenes videos and then start to hate everyone involved in that movie, uh, except for Lily Tomlin. I mean, in recent years, as I've been kind of going back and trying to watch things that, again, I've missed or have heard things about, I'm kind of the Ishtar apologist. I think <laughs> it's actually a kind of a good movie. Uh, so I love him in that performance. We've talked about Tootsie here already, his voice work that he starts to do. He's in a brilliant season two episode of The Simpsons where he actually yes. doesn't use his real name yeah, uh, yeah. in the I credits. Yeah, I about that. And Lisa makes a side joke. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. It's just on Wikipedia. Yeah. So I'm just scrolling through his... Uh, filmography by date and everything because I don't like the Fockers movies. Right. Basically, it's Kung Fu Panda. And then, I think uh, I think the biggest okay. thing with Dustin Hoffman is that he is this actor who I have enjoyed a great many of his films, and yet he is similar to a lot of '70s actors that we've come across, where it's like you kind of hit in the exact right time frame because mm. there's no way you would have been a success had you. Try if, if you were twenty years it. younger. If you were twenty years younger, I don't think you would have had a chance. Of... Well, he str he struggled too because he's small, and right. uh, he struggles still because he's small and old now. And uh, yeah, so did he strike like the lightning thing, or did he did he grind it out? Because it sounds like he did. There's that story of how he got. I can't remember which film, but um, no, the film after the Graduate, where he uh, set up. A meeting with the 2B director and he appeared as a homeless person to prove that it acting range. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure people still do that, but that's a, an energy level as an actor that and a commitment. I mean, we talked about Gene Hackman I and mean, they're all buddies and Robert Duvall. These guys didn't just get picked out of a model catalog because they're so pretty. Uh, all of these guys are not that attractive. They had to push really hard and sweat behind the scene and they all have very strong personalities sure. and drinking problems and so they uh i think they built the 70s it's my feeling. well that's what i mean i think that's yeah. why the 70s is such an interesting period because it isn't a bunch of pinup models who are in the lead roles for so oh, many of these like, iconic yeah. 1970s films like right. 
as attractive as I think as even young Al Pacino is, he is still not what I would consider like, oh my God, like put him up against like Brad Pitt or something like that. But like him, Hoffman, uh, who, who else did you say? Um, Hackman. Ha- Hackman is there. I mean, even Charles Bronson, you know. Charles Bronson as he, he gets more it? popular yeah. in the 70s. Like yeah. these people are not your standard like pretty boys. Uh, no. Not like a Ryan O'Neill, for instance, that we saw, right? Like Ryan O'Neill is your pinup guy. Dustin Hoffman is like his schlubby best friend. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was what it would be nowadays on how you would make a movie. Oh, boy. No, anyways, I mean, uh, we're, we're getting really surface level now. But Well, I just, I'm just i saying I enjoy him. The unfortunate part about Dustin Hoffman is that apparently he is also like a huge jerk behind the scenes. At this point, who isn't? Look at his output in the 80s. I think he makes only four movies in the 1980s, mostly because... A, he was super picky, and B, if he was up for a part, he was like, okay, but I want all of these rewrites before I sign on, on the dotted line, and just most directors were like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, he was the pre-Edward Norton, Edward Norton. Yeah. <laughs> Too smart for his own good. Uh, and Straw Dogs, uh, do, you, do you know anything about this movie, Dave? You know, it's in the last week I quipped, I've never, I have heard of this film before, and I did okay. know that it was a D- Dustin Hoffman film, but... I thought I was mixing it up with Dog Day Afternoon, which is, I think that's uh, the Pacino one. That's the Pacino one, yeah. And I was uh, mixing it up because, as you kind of brought up off air, there have been remakes. And uh, I suddenly started thinking, like, isn't this a new movie? So now that we're here sitting on this couch, I've realized I've never watched it, uh, but I have heard of it. It does have lasting power in the uh, cinephile world. And uh, I'm not going to say I'm excited to see it because uh, if we had already watched it, I don't want to commit myself to that. Yeah, like everything in 1971, I'm ready to see so, what yeah. they're going well, to I, show me. I won't, I won't spoil the surprise. I know of Straw Dogs. I also have never seen this movie before. I know the big thing that happens of what this movie is known for. And it's known for a lot of violence to its characters so buckle in, I suppose, Dave, for, for that. But I also know, like, I know the, the big controversy from this film. So I feel like I'm a bit prepared for what we're about to witness here. We'll see. We'll so see. we'll see. It's going to be fun. Let's see this then. We're going to go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a lot more about Straw Dogs. I'm just scared that my life is eventually going to come to a place where I am locked inside my house as people break window upon window upon window just don't move to cornwall (laughs) quality advice for every single person hey just don't move to cornwall all right well we are in our ad read section which means dave that putting it together is a proud member of the alberta podcast network locally wrong uh, wrong 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 podcast dang it i do this every time I'm going to leave that in. I'm going to leave it in. If you just, no, if you want, yeah, if you want to leave it in and talk about putting it together, that's fine. It has nothing Nothing to to do do with this podcast. With this podcast. (sighs) But, you know, if you want everyone to know about your other projects, Colin, you are a businessman now, so that's fine. I won't take it too personally. I am not on putting it together. You have been, though. You have been. Uh, You're you're being an aggressive dog rather than a straw dog right now. I'm just going to put that out there. I need to tell you that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Today, I actually get to tell you about a new sponsor. This episode of Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is brought to you by Yeg Podfest, presented by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Alberta Podcast Network and LitFest, Canada's non-fiction festival. 
Running October 1st through 3rd, Yeg Podfest will be held all online this year, so anyone can tune in to experience it. Events include masterclasses with professional podcasters, panel discussions, feature interviews, and more. Some of APN's member shows will be there too. So join us for the virtual party from October 1st through 3rd. To check out the full lineup and get tickets, head to yegpodfest.ca. That's Y-E-G podfest.ca. I don't remember being invited to be a panelist on that one, Kyle. Maybe they haven't actually asked us yet, but we could be there. Who knows? In the fullness of time, we just don't know. Mail is hard to send in space. Have you had any chance to check your eyes? I actually just got new glasses, Dave, at our last pit stop. Thanks for noticing. Yeah, and no, it's important because I don't need to wear them. <laughs> As you can see, this genetic gift in front of you, Kyle, does not need glasses. This episode is brought to you by the Alberta Associations of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It's a long time. Is Calgary 100 years old? Yes. Wow. Sometimes it feels like we're in the 1950s, though, doesn't it, Dave? hey <laughs> It happens. One in four school-aged kids has a vision problem. Yet 80% of learning is visual for a child. That's why booking family eye exams with an optometrist helps ensure learning success. You can't detect hidden eye problems, but your optometrist can. Alberta health coverage towards annual eye exams is available until your child's 19th birthday. Are they a child still at 19? Well, you're... No, I don't know. I don't know. Who cares? (laughs) Book your family's book your family's eye exam today at optometrist.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrist.ab.ca. I don't know if I could spell optometrist. God. Yeah, with, without a, a spell checker, there's no way. All right, so Dave, we just watched the movie Straw Dogs. Uh, I believe we need to do this right from the top in case anyone is listening and still doesn't really know what this movie is about and has decided not to watch the movie along with us. I really do believe I need to put on a bit of a warning here as far as like, sexual assault and rape because we are going to be talking about those two topics probably pretty in depth in regards to this movie but having made that preface dave tell me your immediate thoughts on watching straw dogs <laughs> i mean it's not just a i mean the whole movies of theoretically about that uh yeah it's awful i I am still like the movie is awful or the, the experience of it. Yeah. The okay. experience of it is awful. It is interesting as the movie opens within the first 30 seconds, you get a premonition of what this film is oh, going to yeah. be about because the, uh, the male gaze, you know, the leer, uh, that you are put into, especially as viewers in 2021, I, it'll be interesting, uh, when we put this on YouTube or when this airs, what kind of feedback we'll get from people who watched this in 1971 and whether they're more apologetic about this is just the way things were back then. Um, But it's definitely put forward a bit of a victim blaming thing. Like from from the start. And it is uh, 
uncomfortable as soon as it starts. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I wanted to call out here. And unlike some of the other films that I have had huge issues with this year, if I didn't like them, I also felt that there was something lacking in like the filmmaker's craft or ability. I actually don't have it with this movie. The The hard part I feel myself in is like, oh, there is actually something here. Like, I feel like there's talent behind the camera. I also even feel like even at the script level, there's something that they're trying for. But that is also mixed with this uncomfortableness. And whether they meant to or not, a theme and a message that is, yes, very victim blaming, but also basically comes down to like, you're not actually a man unless you're killing people. Yeah, at least that, you know, when push comes to shove, the real man will appear type of thing. I mean, they do try their, uh, in their own way to depict the Dustin Hoffman character as sort of above it all, but also a coward. So there's so much tension of how this thing is starting to unravel. And I think that the caricatures, the pantomimes, the cartoonishness of all of the villains makes this into a horror movie. I mean, this is a horror movie, basically. And when we get to the critical I'd call scene, it a psychological thriller, but uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, it's, it's horrifying. And when we get to the scene where uh, the wife, the young lady, who's, who's quote-unquote asking for it, gets mm-hmm. brutally gang-raped, they shoot that fucking scene for easily 10 minutes. They probably, ra- I, I hope they didn't uh, Kubrick it, and we definitely right. need to talk about clockwork again. Uh, and that woman had to uh, shoot that scene more than once. But it is uh, graphic and it's brutal. And what's the worst part of the whole thing is she does not, she has not allowed any reprieve from it. She then suffers for the rest of the film. She gets beat up by her own husband who's allegedly trying to be the man. And in the end, he just drives away. And I'm just like, what the fuck did I just watch? Um, it is yeah, a I think that the, strange the very film. end of this movie does it no favors. So here, again, here is my struggle with this movie. I'm stealing this from another reviewer I was reading on Letterboxd somewhere. Uh, A a, a positive review, I will say. This movie is essentially a live-action trolley problem. And if you're not familiar with that, this is like that... uh, I don't know if it's in psychology or what, but it's basically... Okay, there's a trolley or a train, and someone you don't know is Mm. uh, tied to the tracks, or like a whole family you don't know is tied to the tracks... And you can flip the switch. Do you let it kill one person or the family? Now, most people are going to say, well, I'll let it kill the one person. I don't know either of them, but it seems to be okay to kill the one person versus the family. Okay. Now the problem is, it's your own mother. That's the one person. And then this family you don't know. Now more people will switch to being like, well, then I'll let it kill the whole family because I have a relationship with the mother. and I don't want my own mother to die. And so there is that like theoretical thing going on here that I feel that they're trying to struggle with, where we have this pacifist person, so-called pacifist mathematician. He could nip all these things in the bud if he was able to stand up to these brutes and louts that are surrounding his farm, rebuilding his roof, who are leering at his wife, that she mentions like, hey, I don't feel comfortable. He had the opportunity at that point to get them out of his life again, presumably. It takes them coming and ravaging his house while he's protecting. They never explicitly say it, but I'm assuming like a child rapist is what that character is supposed to be. Hmm. He doesn't know that. Like the character, the centric doesn't know that. Um, he sees this guy as, hey, I accidentally hit him on the road. I don't know all this other backstory that's going on. So he's trying to protect this guy. 
while these other people are trying to break into his house and then going to extreme measures to do so. So all that stuff I actually find kind of fascinating in the theoretical. It's like, yeah, there's kind of an interesting thing that we could explore there. I also am a little bit, and maybe you can walk me through this, Dave. I feel bad is the wrong word, but I also feel like over the last few weeks, it's I've come across as like this huge prude that like anytime violence is on screen, like I have to like push back on it a little bit. And I think that rape as awful as it is, and it's like it's not like I enjoy watching those scenes, but can be handled in a way. It's like this is a scene that's happening, and now we're going to explore the fallout from from this decision. My problem with this movie fundamentally, and I see it everywhere. People who love this movie, the way that this movie is described by like film historians, is like this is a a rape revenge thriller. This is a rape revenge thriller, and I kind of call bullshit on that because yeah. on. Most of those types of films, it is the woman who then has agency and goes after her killers. And we as an audience can feel like, okay, yes, we're in this weird situation where we are celebrating killing. But I mean, it's because there was this extreme act of violence thrusted upon our main character. That does not happen in this movie. She, yes, does get to, I believe, shoots the last guy there at the, at the very end as, I guess, a little bit of uh, retaliation. But by and large, the majority of this film is... We have a husband who's a, an awful person, I find, too, who slaps around, treats her as a child, doesn't believe her when she comes to him with stuff. But he doesn't know that she's been raped, at least in the fiction of the film. He's That's not told. Yes. He's not told that that happens. And so his extreme violence is because why? They're yeah. invading his home. So he, he values his stuff more than he values his wife. I, I, yes. And, th- and this is the problem with how people's opinions reflect more about themselves than about whatever they're consuming. So I'll bring it up because we're getting a lot of heat for it. You watch Death in Venice, you can, ref- you know, we do this with animals, you know, we do this mm-hmm. every the anthropomorphism, like we, we have to see ourselves in everything that we interact with. If you watch this film and you think that the Dustin Hoffman character is justified in any way to murder any of these people, there's something psychologically wrong with you. I think if a critic is watching this film and wants to talk about it like you, you're bringing up in a philosophical term, whether it's all these dilemmas, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, meat in this because I think one of the things that's happening other than the code getting lifted, you know, we're getting this last, last second world war generation. We're getting people that have and suffer from direct involvement with PTSD, have seen crimes against humanity, have walked and seen civilian killings and rapes and everything, their level of personal trauma is starting to get reflected. I think that's what we're really seeing here. Is People uh, working through that trauma in some yeah, ways? Yeah, and doing it in a public and very visceral mm-hmm. sense. Because, you know, these artists have, they have a more powerful tool than simply, let's say, talking about it in a counseling session, writing a poem. They have a very graphic medium, which is a film. You know, even photography can't handle this because... With photography, you still have single frames, even if you build them into a narrative. But here we have what is portrayed as reality. You're living on a spaceship traveling at light speed. You don't know what reality is anymore. And I agree with you. I mean, uh, when the rape happens, it's very difficult to watch on a graphic and violent scene, but also on an emotive and psychological, philosophical level. There's no why leading up to it because... You know, the bad guys are portrayed as animals and they have town songs about fucking sheep and they have like 
They, they're just built into these really shitty cartoon characters. There's no women in the town other than the little girl that wears basically no skirt. It is such a man film, like a, in the worst way possible. This is a gross, violent man directing it. Clearly some problematic man writing it. I think Peckinpah had a hand in the screenplay. It's men building this who characterize everybody as these wolves. And after the assault, I will give the film this much credit. It does deal with her trauma within herself in a very seemingly, I mean, I'm not a woman, but uh, seemingly realistic sense that every moment, every time she's butt up against it, she has to relive the trauma. But you have right. to ask questions like, why is she going to the church? Why aren't they moving it away? Like, yeah, I can understand why it's very difficult to talk about it. Maybe she doesn't want to bring it up. They do set up the sequence where he can't act on any of them anyway, so she's lost her trust in him. But if that's the case, like you brought up, when this thing finally comes to a boil and he's slapping around calling her a coward, even though he's been such a piece of shit to her the whole time, then he keeps talking about my home. It's not about his stuff. He doesn't even have belongings. I mean, he's breaking his shit to say, it becomes about his ego, doesn't it? I mean, right. the, I, the word home is just about my pride, my masculinity. I, do, I don't know. It's... It's uh, aggravating. I, I, if we had not watched it just now on a couch, I spent 30 minutes trying to unclench. I, I was I, Well, see, that, and I think miserable. honestly, I, that goes back to part of the artistry here. I think it's a little bit easy. I could just completely dismiss this and be like, whatever, this is bad and awful and I don't agree with the worldview. And that's all true for my point of view. But this movie stayed with me. I had to go for a walk. After I watched this, like I'm too tense. I'm like, like literally vibrating after I watched this movie because it was that visceral feeling. Like, again, talking about that rape scene and even some of the violence that happens at the end, I was just like, it is done in such a way that like I am in the middle of this, and uh, as a viewer, you're not allowed to look away from it. And it just feels like this feels awful. She pleads, she says no multiple times. Like this is there's no ambiguity that this is a rape that is happening. Like you said, though, I think that somewhat of the awful thing, and critics of the time even mentioned this as well, that it essentially turns, in the first rape that happens, that she kind of ends up actually liking it a little bit, and it is really framed that way. That she brought it on to herself, because she's right. flirtatious by nature. I mean, this idea, it, and it's such a North American thing, this obsession that women, like, you know, you can't go on Instagram if a woman shows her nipples. But like a man can be basically anything but a hard dick and it's fine. And this is the kind <laughs> right. of film where that comes from. I mean, the whole first 20 seconds is just showing her nipples poking out of her sweater mm -hmm. and how that's the reason why she's going to become eaten alive. And you're like, why? Why is that a thing? I mean, I... Well, uh, it's true. And it's like, oh gosh. So I actually also watched this week the... Uh, well, right after this movie, you saw me do it. I watched the the remake of this movie, and now I'm maybe conflating things. Does he not say in this movie, like, maybe you should wear a bra? Yes. Okay, yeah. he does say in this movie. Yeah, Dustin okay. Hoffman says that in this film. So again, in our modern context, yes, this is called, like, victim blaming, and, and it really is odd, like, how this is framed. She is kind of shown to be a child that he is married almost in this. A flirt, um, a cock tease. She's a bit of a flirt, and then it's like... She's a doll, right? She's a sex doll, right. basically. But I guess maybe my biggest issue here is, so there is only two women characters really in this movie. Yep. One is there to be objectified and raped. And the other one is there and to the be other objectified is, and raped. Well, she's not raped, I don't think. But, but I mean, basically she's there to be killed. <laughs> it's yeah. really what she's there for. And again, 
asking for it because no. she's no, but that's uh, overtly the whole, sexual. That's but that's what I mean. the whole thing is that she is the daughter of that fucking buffoon who breaks glasses right. with his hands. But that's what him and his gross sheep herding sons are talking about is that she is going to be raped with the mm. way that she goes on. But because it's their daughter, it's going to be the pervert's fault. We're going to kill the pervert before that right. happens. Uh, we never get to find out what this guy did, why he's crippled, why the town hates him. But the suggestion is either that he was a pedophile or that he had tried to molest a young girl before. Right. We don't know. And then the it's, town beat them up. Yeah, I yeah, think is what, I, again, the I subtext is. I think that's is. the implication. So, um, no, she's, she's not there to be murdered. She's also there to be objectified and raped. You know, she just ends up getting murdered because uh, after she's about to, again, it's her fault. She leads the pervert on, brings her into the shed, it brings him into the shed. But just because they're about to get caught... He accidentally strangles her to death while trying to keep her quiet. I think that's like, it is gross. The, the whole, the whole uh, approach to what women are in this world is disgusting and yeah. indicative of why we're having so much trouble with, with even now civil rights discussions about women uh, because it's so deeply ingrained. You see it in the films we've watched this year. How hard is it for us to find a reasonably competent, independent female character maybe in uh i don't know like sunday bloody sunday i mean i, I can't even name them i'm, I'm like, trying yeah, i'm really scrambling like we have not seen clute yet which i know stars jane fonda so maybe that's a movie that we'll see like a very bold what we call strong female character but at least it's not even like the strongness that i, that I care no, about it's, it's no like depth. just i uh, just yeah that's what i mean like it's a woman who feels like a person and not yeah. just like a prop made for like a man to jizz yeah. to you could have uh yeah, you could have a blow up doll. I mean, not against the actress and her acting. I mean, mm-hmm. it, like you said, from a craft perspective, and even though this is such a negative thing to say, she plays this essentially perfectly. I mean, you feel every moment there's nothing fake about her performance when she's no. upset with Dustin Hoffman, when she's happy, when she's flirtatious, when she's doing all this stuff, you get sucked into it because everybody actually plays their part very very well like within the context of what they're supposed to do the rape scene it's so brutal because she's in that scene like you can't pull away it's not not real and so yeah we could criticize that first part of that and how her character's asked to act but by the time the other guy gets in there i mean that's like that's torture porn and if people like this type of film again it's a reflection of them and their seated fetish problems and you know their lack of i don't know whatever you want to call it without getting everybody angry but if well, you watch the, it, yeah, go yeah. ahead all i was going to say about the the second rape that happens it is within the current cut of the film i think is somewhat not obvious what is going on uh because that's supposed to be uh, a sodomy that's yeah. happening at that point yeah. i don't know if that's necessarily a hundred percent like obvious they had to cut out a bunch of scenes so that they could keep an r rating rather than an x rating and actually be released into theaters and that is the the scene that they had to basically cut out because apparently it was very obvious what was going on originally yeah, they, i don't remember i don't want to remember that well but there's they imply it i can't remember if they do a cutaway i mean the whole time these guys have fucking songs about having sex with sheep in their ass like it's it's just such a this guy, and the other thing too is we're painting never mind uh the violence against women we have attacked cornwall <laughs> we 
we've made it seem like uh, small sheeping village, sh shepherding villages in England are basically a, a stinking pot of rapists and sheep. Like these are the tropes that we make fun of small town people with. Like the whole thing is so weird. One I, element I think that may have helped this movie a lot to at least feel like there was a thematic point or a deeper thematic point. I'll put it that way. A deeper thematic point is yes, all four of those people that are working on the roof, her previous boyfriend and the three other people are so cartoonishly evil bumbling fools that it's like again you don't feel like real people had they been super competent at their jobs and like upstanding gentlemen and then but are still uh, prone to like come up with this plan to rape the the wife of the person who they're helping at least that gives me something to latch on to instead of being like oh they're probably going to harm her at some point in this movie like it's not even uh, subtle that that's what's going to happen those characters just drove me nuts the entire movie because like i don't even feel like you're a real person that i'm looking at here and, and maybe maybe it's the lead but you know we're seeing in all the depictions in this film world and we only get the window of movies that maybe this is how many men essentially are. Uh, maybe, hopefully, not in acts, but maybe this is a glimpse of the male psyche itself in the 1970s. And presumably, it's not like fucking rape culture has disappeared. It might even be no, worse now. But well, I think I think honestly, the biggest thing here is that there that we keep coming back to is that these are people. These are filmmakers, actors who are struggling with so many different things. Yes. Yes, a lot of the creative team is probably coming from that World War II generation who saw awful things happen then. But we're also in the middle of Vietnam where we're seeing awful images coming back to us on screen and seeing like the, the worst of humanity given to us. Violent crime is on the rise. Uh, race riots are happening. Like I could understand why people are thinking, well, it's the end of the world. Like Things are going off here right now. And how do we how do we wrangle Talk that well, i'm going to make this movie about why all people are evil and that pacifism is the wrong approach that is the i think the biggest thing here is that he they kind of conflate this idea of like sexual virility and like violence as being what men are about and you're not a true man unless you succumb to that but then at the end of the day like well then is dustin hoffman better or worse than these people that he just killed. Like, I, I feel like the message is so muddled in this film that I'm not even sure what they're trying to communicate other than just being like, we're just going to have a lot of violence for violence's sake. I think that's the two readings are a violence porn, so violence uh, and sexual violence for the sake of violence on screen and people getting off. And there's going to be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be judgmental, a lower rung of viewers and humanity who will stop there and search for this sort of thing. And so if you're that type of person, you can turn this off and you can go fuck yourself. But um, for the bigger, grander discussion is, is it better? I mean, we kind of brought this up in some other, other films. Is there such thing as good representation or do we just need representation in, in principle? And, and that comes from this idea that uh, should we need a movie or a book or a play to tell us how we ought to feel at the end? Or should we bring up a conversation that makes kind of like this, us argue with each other about where the lines are supposed to be? And I think films have lost uh, that artistic side where they're leaving it as an open-ended conversation for sure. I would put this above the conversation brought up in Clockwork Orange, which is much more violence porn oriented because there isn't a moral center. Uh, and the only catch in this, the, the brutal ending and this idea that he takes this 
I don't know, pedophile, rapist, killer into the car, but then, you know, has that annoying smirk on his face where he's like, I don't know what I'm doing either. The mm. only sort of good or balancing part is that he's not a hero either. So at the very least, after killing all these people and slapping his wife and calling her a coward, he's not like walking out shirtless, you know, uh, flexing his pecs with mm. like, you know, sort of a Stallone thing with like two machine guns strapped to his shoulders and ready to take on the sequel. At the same time, I don't think it goes far enough to kind of unclench me and give me an right. idea of where the conversation might be. And maybe I'm just used to being spoon-fed information, but uh, I don't know how to feel about this film, Kyle. It's, I know, it's got this so is, many pieces, right? It's, this is where I'm at. It's like I feel so conflicted in so many ways. Like I absolutely did not enjoy the experience from like the halfway point to the ending of this movie. But I also think in many ways it succeeds in what it sets out to do. Unlike in Clockwork Orange, like in a Clockwork Orange, there is a bit of a, I don't know, a detachment, a levity, even to those rape scenes, which is a little bit gruesome, I find. And in this one, I am never at any time, I don't believe that that rape scene was supposed to be like, isn't this a fun time at the movies, right? And so at least in that sense, I think Peck and Pye is saying, like, this is bad. Like, this is bad what we're showing you. Yes, I'm going in and showing you the evils, but never once am I going to be, do I want this to be shown and being like, to use your word, titillating and getting people off on it. Coupled with the same time, like, he's, we still have that woman kind of doing that for her attacker, or the first attacker at least, where she seems to, like, actually enjoy it by the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really... My reading, I mean, we're spending too much time just dissecting that scene itself, which we don't really want to remember, but I'll say this in terms of my experiencing it. I didn't think that she enjoyed it at all. I just feel like that is that um, problem, particularly with sex violence, where you end up in this conflation between the psychological trauma and the physical experience. And I think that one of the reasons, for example, that men who are victims of sexual abuse have such a hard time proving it is that like you can touch a guy's penis and it will move, right? That has nothing to do with arousal, uh, right. any kind of context narrative. It's not like women are different, right? And I think that, you know, what I saw was that she didn't enjoy it. But at the end, what is she supposed to do? You know, it's not even about a man being stronger than a woman. You're already there. I read it like she's just trying to get this over with and like just get him done so that she can just do something else. Uh, and she definitely didn't, I don't know how that fucking oaf snuck into the room with a shotgun. That whole thing is so contrived. The idea that you brought up, you know, what is the director's intent? And this is the thing in our preamble about giving your word to somebody. I actually don't care what his intent is. Uh, sure. No, I think I... it reflects that you would spend this much film on building that scene, that his intent is muddled as much as our viewing of it. Yeah. I don't think that if you have a strong opinion about this being traumatic, that you need to make it uh, so graphic. I don't. Same, I say the same thing about uh, movie physical violence. I think that there's a point where a gruesome graphic violence can have a place in a film, but I think violence for violence sake is a problem. And that line is so gray now. It was gray yeah, in the hard. seven. It's always gray, well, it, I guess. It's but. also hard in the 2021 context because we've had ultraviolence now for 50 years yeah. in cinema. So we're so desensitized to it anyways. Like that's what I'm actually somewhat impressed by that this can actually have such um, an emotional impact on me because I've seen so much violence in films in the intervening five decades. 
that there's something to this that I'm trying to still wrangle or wrestle with. You know what that is? It's the thing we don't want to give this film credit for, which is that it is well made and the performances yeah. are good and they are drawing you into a world that the, uh, we don't, you don't care whether the shotgun blasts work correctly or if a bear right, trap right. actually like cut a guy's throat, if it would bleed more. You're so caught up in the fact this happening at all. You can't turn it away. It's the car crash thing. And I hated it for it. But at the same time, we can't stop talking about it. I mean, if right, we move yeah, away yeah. from from the middle portion, that whole final sequence of Dustin Hoffman rigging his house and suddenly becoming the super spy, a uh, super assassin or whatever, it's not corny. Somehow, the whole buildup to that, even though he's clearly not meant to be someone who knows what he's doing, the survival instinct thing comes out. He's dirtied up pretty badly, nearly dies several times. Mm-hmm maybe deservedly and shatters his glasses yeah, yeah the, the whole thing just devolves piece by piece and it's orchestrated really well you know from the sher- uh magistrate showing up and getting quote-unquote accidentally murdered and then how that uh brought the drunken psychopaths to the next level of violence because now they have nothing to lose and that the other thing you know we talked about with get carter we talked about it with so many movies you talked about it with the trolley dilemma you know, what is it going to take for someone to care and do something about something? And it always ends up having to be personal. I think the better way to live is to just not care about anything. I didn't enjoy him being a pacifist. I didn't enjoy him victim blaming his wife for bringing a saucer of milk. Like, I didn't understand. Right. He got so upset by that milk. So weird, right? Uh, him sitting there. I mean, it's that part's intentional, like telling her to get her feet off the chalkboard and then himself finding himself doing the exact same thing. I mean, these mm-hmm. are problems that Peck and Paw is clearly aware of, the hypocrisy, and maybe right. not in a male-female sense, but at least protagonist's, uh, you know, co-star sense. I don't, I don't know what I wish for, Kyle. Maybe this is what this movie has always needed to be. I just wish we could watch something lighthearted, you know, <laughs> but also not stupid. <laughs> why can't we just have a perfect movie where it's like fun, no, challenging, Give me the perfect movie. Okay, well, let's do some backstory because there's actually a few other things I want to get into here as well. So Straw Dogs was released December 22nd, 1971. What a great Christmas movie this would be to bring the whole family to. Uh, It is rated 7.5 on IMDb. It has a 73 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 42 critics, it holds an 83%. From 10,000 plus users, it holds an 82%. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. And at least here in Canada, is not available on iTunes or YouTube. And there's no streaming platforms. So it's amazing that we even got a copy of this to watch, isn't it, the Dave? Machine. That all, machine. All the machine. Which is interesting. It's starring Hoffman, directed by Peckinpah, that it's really not available to view oh, anywhere. But the rating. I mean, we, we kind of brought up. I mean, the idea of North American morality is going to stop a movie like this from being shown. Its budget was $2.2 million. It would go on to make $8 million in 1971, which adjusted for inflation is $53 million. Its plot description is, a young American and his English wife come to rural England and face increasingly vicious local harassment, which is a a complete understatement, but it is also true, I suppose. It stars a bunch of people. Dustin Hoffman is David Sumner. Susan George is Amy Sumner. Peter Vaughn is Tom Hedden. Del Henney is Charlie Venner. Ken Hutchinson as Norman Scutt. Jim Norton as Chris Cossie. Donald Webster as Ridaway. And T.P. McKenna as Major John Scott. 
Anything you want to say about any of those actors? Not really. I mean, we know a lot about Dustin Hoffman. I will uh, just quickly note, just in the context as well of building this film and talking about her performance, Susan George really didn't have a career after this film. And mm. I think that uh, she's a very beautiful, attractive woman. She's actually, quite, at least in the context of this film, a very good actress. Uh, you know, I, I got this uh, sudden thought, she looks a lot like Brie Larson. It's kind of weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, apparently she got typecast to be the sex kitten and disappeared from film. And I think that uh, it says a lot. Uh, you know, we talked about this too with, um, you know, LGBTQ actors and portrayals in films. Uh, once you get typecast into this thing, I mean, how hard is it, is it for you to, as a human being to not want to do a film? where mm -hmm. you're famous for being raped, right? It's... Yeah, no, I get it. For modern audiences, I'll just point out, so Peter Vaughn as Tom Head and Heat, that's the old drunk guy. Modern audiences will know him much more as mass, uh, sorry, as Maester Amon from Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, oh. this very kindly old man and is like completely not that way in this movie. The only other actor, because I don't really know much about these actors. They're British actors. I'm sure people over in the UK would know them. Can I just tell you the other thing that spiked my anxiety, and I think it is the character Ridaway, so played by Donald Webster, who starts throwing rats into the house. <laughs> Fuck me. I was like, Bleh. I was like dry heaving while watching this movie. I could, I could not stand it. Them throwing the rats at the camera lens. I'm like, yeah. Well, as, yeah, as much, as much as rats are gross, you know, it finally dawned on me at the end that this is supposed to be a metaphor, isn't it? Of them. And, mm -hmm. uh, there are physical rats that are thrown as weapons into this yeah. uh, siege. There's a lot of layers to this. Of a grossness. lot of layers. Yeah. Well, this is based on the novel The Siege of Trencher's Farm, written by Gordon Williams. The screenplay is by David Zelig Goodman and Sam Peckinpah, directed by Sam Peckinpah. So Gordon Williams, the novelist, was this Scottish author, began as a journalist, which, just as an aside, does seem to be this like really common theme in 1971 where a journalist then becomes a screenwriter and then writes a movie. I don't know why that's such a big thing in 1971. I think we're seeing that. We talked about earlier that these films are gritty and down to earth because these are written and developed by people who have seen real yeah. violence and uh, need to tell people this stuff is actually happening. Right. And we are plebs because I don't want to know. And people are going to read the newspaper, so let's make a movie about it. He was coming off of being nominated for the Booker Prize for his novel from Scenes Like These. Uh, that novel is about a 15-year-old kid who decides to leave school and work on the family farm. And then, as he's subsumed by alcoholism and other vices, tries to better himself, much to the scorn of his own family. So, sounds, sounds super fun. So, right after that book, he publishes this, The Siege of Trenchers Farm. The movie actually does change a lot of things from the book. So one, in the book, he's a novelist uh, instead of a mathematician. So very Stephen King. Uh, they have a daughter that they bring with them, uh, but they are having marital troubles. The husband is having trouble relating to the locals in the pub. Um, and then at the end, there's this child killer that's being transported by police. Car hits ice, child killer escapes. That's when our protagonist accidentally hits him on the way back from the pub doesn't know who he is, takes him back to his house. At the same time, a child in the village goes missing. So the townsfolk, townsfolk think it's the killer at the cottage and they go and try and get him free and they lay siege on the place. Peckinpah is coming off of an interesting time. He'd released The Wild Bunch to much acclaim in 1969. 
He then does this movie called, not that, autocorrect uh, <laughs> has killed me again. I have written down The Balls. <laughs> what? Sorry, The Balls of Cable Hogue, but that's not what this, uh, it's not what it's called. Let me just ask, what have you been writing that your algorithm is defaulting to The Balls? Hey, oh, I, might be on t I might be on Tinder again, Dave, okay, so no, no shaming me up here play. in space. <laughs> it is called, so he was coming off of this movie called The Ballad of Cable Hogue, is what it was called. It uh, was this financial failure. It also like ran over time and over budget, so he was not really in the good graces of Hollywood at this point. He was kind of on the search of just a small film that he could make to kind of get his name back out there because no one was willing to give him money after like this huge debacle from his last movie. So he goes to England, tries to make this smaller movie. Interestingly enough, he did not like the book like at all. Uh, he's quoted as saying, David Goodman and I sat down and tried to make something of validity out of this rotten book. We did. The only thing we kept was the siege itself. David Goodman, again, as an aside, the co-writer of this movie, I looked at his IMDb. I think the only thing that I even have name recognition for is Logan's Run, mm -hmm. is what he also wrote. Dustin Hoffman has actually been quoted as saying in recent years, at least, that he didn't actually want to be in this movie. He did it explicitly for money. He was almost broke, apparently, after the first few years. So it's like, I just need money. I'm just going to take the next role that someone gives to me. And that's how, why he was hired and was able to get some funding because of his name attached to it. The biggest thing here is that, yes, the story at the time was this being trying to be released in theaters because its initial cut was given to the censor board and they said we can't release this we're not going to release this movie so they had to go back in retool it a bit and then re-release in the theaters one thing that i think is important is that as much as yes dave and i are approaching this from a 2021 context and have our own feelings about it and victim blame and stuff like that i think it's important to know that there was a good portion of critics at the time that said the exact same thing <laughs> this is not just some like woke liberal cuck being like oh i'm a little bit annoyed by the way they portray women that was said at the time so this has been with this film for 50 years but like we're not exactly 100 percent on board with this i'm looking at the the book i'll note the genre's horror so in your face kyle okay, um, okay. it is interesting the book does not include uh, at least in the synopsis the uh, infamous rape scene so Again, oh, yeah, that is added in for the film. I should have pointed that out. That is not in the movie. Uh, in the book. So the, oh, sorry, that's not in the book. It is in the movie because we talked about it for 40 minutes. So it brings us back to this idea of, you know, who is this reflecting? Is it culture at large or is it the director? And yeah, just to speak about viewing this in a modern context, uh, I think this is what's so gripping about watching not just the, the scene, but the whole film is that the violence is on par with what we would consider hyperviolence to be on today. I mean, sure. uh, the uh, nature of CGI has changed, and maybe our understanding of what real blood ought to look like has changed, but this is a film that does not rely on red ketchup and, uh, and bullet holes in the forehead. This is, a, this is a movie where the violence ends with brutal, brutal deaths, suffering, yes. and people actually getting up from wounds. You know, this is not uh, a shoot 'em up like a Western. This is uh, Dustin Hoffman clawing and scratching his way through other human beings, you know, ostensibly like in the end for nothing, you know, for nothing. He gets nothing out of it. I think that's the nihilistic part of this film. That's the hardest to chew on uh, with all the violence, trauma, pain, suffering by everybody involved. Dustin Hoffman walks away from this and he's just like basically shrugging at the camera 
And she's like, I can't believe you paid to watch this, you know? Well, I, yeah, that's what I feel like that ending. I, I mentioned this, how I think it lets down the movie. I, I shouldn't say let down the movie. I, I feel insulted is even a strong word, but I'm going to say that. It kind of insults you because it's like, yeah, this child pedophile character is like, I don't know my way home. And then Dustin is like, neither do I. I'm like, like, you might as well do like the freeze frame Big Jake <laughs> roll credits thing at this point. Because that's such a lame way to end this movie, I feel. Yeah. Because uh, again, it's like, I, what do you, what are you trying to communicate to me to feel about this character? Right. Then at this point. I, I mean, it does do a better job than some of the other films in that at least it's, a, yeah, it's not a shining light. Like the Big Jake thing is equally as offensive in the movie is not nearly as deep um, because it becomes a stupid Saturday morning cartoon at the end of such violence. This does sort of the opposite, but in its attempt to be artsy and leave it too open, uh, it's left too open and you just wonder why you watched it in the first place. And uh, mm -hmm. I, again, I don't know if that's our... Uh, intellectual weakness that we can't draw more out of it but i definitely yeah spent 30 minutes I, I realized even after i'd unclenched my body my jaw, my jaw was like, yeah i, I didn't yeah. even realize i was grinding my teeth i was the same way it's like why am i why is my face here like oh because i've been like my jaw has been like like a vice basically like biting into each other i mean i know we're often come off as prudish um you know, I've watched my share of visual graphic movies. Kyle watches horror films. In, in yeah. a, you know, we, we've seen things depicted in film. And so just as a reference, uh, whoever's listening, I had to like, yeah, we both had physical reactions to a film. And that's, that's and a And there's thing. something there. There is something there. I, I, a movie that I would compare it to, just so that people, again, that I don't come off as like, oh, any type of violence is something that I don't like. One of my absolute all-time favorite films is the original Halloween. So 1978, I think that movie comes out in. What John Carpenter does so effectively in that thing is that, yes, there is violence in here. And there's violence against women in that, in that movie. Never once, A, am I supposed to be, like, siding with, essentially, like, the monster in that movie. I am always on the side of the woman in that movie. And her attempts to get out of that situation, kill that situation... And I just find that so much more fulfilling as a journey. It's like there is a lot of blood, a lot of mayhem, a lot of gruesomeness in that movie. But I always feel that it's justified because there's this like object constantly getting closer that's scary and frightening. But I want the female protagonist to win. And that's kind of what I wanted this movie to be. It's like I want her. I also want her to win. But the movie doesn't even seem to be interested in bringing her into the equation. She's just there to be ogled at have violence enacted on her and then give the man the the ability to seek vengeance i googled why this movie's called straw dogs oh i wanted to bring that up but yeah you bring you say it yeah apparently it was uh, a reference to the tao te ching, uh, tao te ching and yeah. the idea of a sacrificial ceremonial piece a straw dog that you use and worship and then burn throw into the fire when you're done with mm -hmm. it i suppose the intent is to make what's her name susan george's character into the straw dog of the film. Right. Uh, or if we give it too much credit to just put a question as to what is the straw dog? Is it the wife? Is it his career, his grant, his pride? Who, who knows? Who cares? But it is fascinating that Peckinpah, for whatever was going on in his personal life, which when we read into it, it nothing constructive or, or nice, he's trying and I suppose successfully brings in a... Um, 
a very intellectual, I suppose, reading into what mm-hmm. this plot was. is supposed to be about. At the same time, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I get it. <laughs> Dave, what you don't understand could fill multiple books. Here's the thing. Just to build on that straw dogs metaphor. So the actual phrase in the Tao Te Ching says, heaven and earth are impartial, treating creatures like straw dogs. And then Suji's commentary underneath that says this, heaven and earth are not partial. They do not kill living things out of cruelty or give them birth out of kindness. We do the same when we make straw dogs to use in sacrifices. We dress them up and put them on the altar, but not because we love them. And then when the ceremony is over, we throw them into the street, but not because we hate them. And to, I guess, equate human life in that same way does feel like so dismissive and awful. Again, I guess I'm, I'm looking for that metaphor to be actually dealt with more so and make that. I guess, I guess I am asking for it to be more obvious. I guess after this conversation, that's what I'm asking for. Make this a much more obvious metaphor that you're playing around with because it stands it just feels like i we're watching brutality happen without there being much point behind that brutality you know when i so bringing that up i think number one when i read that as well i was thinking you know is the point supposed to be that human beings can't treat people like straw dogs only gods can but it's not it's not obvious and if you've never read the Tao Te Ching and don't know what a straw dog is then it doesn't it doesn't work it's it's literally pornography when we look at uh death in venice it's the same thing if the plot is supposed to be about reclaiming youth or uh mourning a dead son or about some existential problem with a man in failing health then that's where the film needs to be but it becomes a reflection of the director you know and the director's own i'm gonna say like perversion and their own sort of twisted personal space you know as we learn later that they brought a kid into a gay club like not because that's wrong but in order for him to feel objectified so then there there's an intent for that to be the purpose of the film and kubrick's clockwork orange same thing you know if this movie's supposed to be a satire or a comment against ultra violence then we need a counterpoint to the depiction of just violence and there isn't one there's no well i, th- I think that's the big thing no like, we're, we're calling the straw dogs but who is the straw dog then in this right. in this film? I think is what we're both kind of circling around, because if it's the wife character to then equate rape as an ambivalent act is like I don't understand that point of view. Then you have to do a lot more work to get me <laughs> to understand what you're even talking about there. And even with our main character that Dustin Hoffman is playing, like. Nothing that happens in this movie is because of ambivalence, which is what that quote is about, right? The straw dog is just a thing that we have here. Yes, when we're praising it, we have it on the altar. It's not because we love the thing. It's because we're using it in our ceremony. And then when we're done with it, we can just discard it. But there's a lot of anger and violence and intentionality behind everything that people do in this movie. So none of it feels like an ambivalent act. If you start this film with this quote to explain what a straw dog is. Right. And then if, you, if and we're doing our classic revisionist thing now, if you take the Susan George character, you play it the same way where she becomes this object of sexual worship. You don't even need a rape, right? Mm-hmm. Because at that point, the idea of worshiping her and then when the violence is done, casting her away because the idea of worshiping sort of a, a sex goddess becomes irrelevant now for the next stage of this guy's life. 
I mean, that whether it's a good movie, whether we should have that discussion, I is you know, we'd have to talk about if it ever happened. But that is something to connect these pieces together. Because then you can have a discussion about the nature of a straw dog. But mm. that is not how this movie works. This no, movie, I agree. Yeah, it implies maybe that you've read the Tao Te Ching in 1971 as an American audience. No, nobody has. <laughs> Bruce Lee had a hardest, hard enough time telling people that you know, Asian philosophies were different from Socrates. So, right. uh, I, I don't know. The whole thing's so uh, twisted in on itself. That that's what I mean. It, it, it's a muddled in what I think it's trying to communicate, and that's where it basically loses me. Without it's it, not, the internet. It's not even necessary. I, I know we've spent a lot of time on, like, the ultraviolence and the rape. It's like, those by themselves, I don't think make this a bad movie. I think it's having those in this movie and then not fully committing to what you're trying to say about those acts of cruelty is where it's like okay now you you've presented this but you haven't followed through on on what you're what you're really trying to communicate here to the audience you've caused us constipation but you haven't supplied a laxative is that what we're talking about exactly (laughs) before we end i do want to mention like again uh where i think that there's this artistry here i i forget what the setup is to this quote but there kind of moving into the cottage and they're talking about life in America and how people live over there. And I like how Hoffman says, oh, they just live just between the commercials. And I thought that was actually, oh, that's an interesting thing. Again, they don't really go much with that. The one part that I love, I actually really did enjoy like their like their relationship building in the beginning part. Again, it's done in a way that's like, oh, this is going to end badly. Like, I just know this is going to end badly. I actually did laugh out loud once during this film and it's when they have that test of her trying to figure out what the next chess move is going to be. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. doing his like, um, he's whatever, his aerobics. His exercises. Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to count to, it's like, I have to count to a hundred. Or it's like, when she says like, you're supposed to, you're supposed to count to a hundred. It's like, I did it in binary. I'm like, that's actually a pretty funny joke. That's actually a really funny joke. We, yeah. I mean, that, I, I agree that there was something charming. And this thing, you know, I think there's good craftsmanship. I think mm-hmm. the story could work. But spending so much time on the visual aspect is what makes it into a pornography. That yeah. scene too, I mean, you've got this great character building, relationship building, and it also devolves into a porno, right? I mean, oh, yeah. the thing becomes about- uh, The neighborhood kids watching through the window and all and that. And they're having stuff. elaborate sex. I mean, at that point, at least we're not uh, doing the full, uh, right? The yeah. full action, but you know, they're, they're as far as they're going to go. Maybe there was something cut out for the NC-17 rating. Who knows? I will also say we really should have been constructing a list throughout this season- because once again, we have an example of them not giving a shit about animals in their movies. <laughs> because Hoffman does whip that tomato with that cat. Yeah. Whether that's the actual sound effect the cat made, I don't know. But he he hits it with a tomato, for sure, right in the face. You know, that was the other thing that had me uh, a little confused was he's depicted as a sociopath. And I, I have trouble kind of, like at first I thought this was going to be, not like Taken, but something like that where he, he you know, she keeps talking about how he shouldn't have turned away from some fight in America. And it's it's just left open. So I was like, right. is, was he actually some vigilante? Or like in the DocuSucker, was he part of some resistance movies escaping? She's like, you can't return back to the country, I think she says at some point. Right. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, oh, like, is this guy with a secret past? But then he's just a buffoon until he needs to kill like 15 people in a, or eight people in a row. Um, well, I, th- I think what bothers me a little bit about in the middle, like there is that moment where he sees the cat hanging in mm-hmm. the dresser. Yeah. Uh, I'm not hanging, this. Uh, it was killed and uh, killed just and for hanged, the, yeah. yeah, for the listeners to understand it was dead. Uh, it was dead. 
there was there's someone else on Letterboxd that I read that kind of mentions like in part I think this film wants you to cheer for his eventual succumbing to violence at the end and protecting his family and home. But it's like they felt like that all goes out the window at that point where he does not let his wife know what is in that closet and lets her go up and actually see it mm-hmm. for herself. That does feel psychopathic in many ways. And I agree with that. It's like, again, think about this in your real in your real life. Like if, if for some reason you had a pet and you see it dead, you're not going to let your wife just go discover that by herself. Well, he was punishing her because he hates the cat. And even yeah. though he ignored, I mean, that's the whole thing is the hypocrisy. He ignores her. But when he needs to be coddled, she needs to be at his beck and call. And I wish that was something unique to his character, but is reflective of the patriarchy of that era, that this Mm -hmm. is a woman's correct place. And we see that played in the final siege where she tries to escape and he has to correct her by hitting her several times, telling her what to do at every stage, even though he's never allegedly never performed uh, a garrisoned uh, defense of a stronghold structure. (laughs) <laughs> in his life right, right. some of my best vacations were spent protecting the garrison there's all of a sudden he's like oh you're doing this wrong smack you're you're gonna go on they're just gonna kill you and he's hitting her and t- calling her like a child and it is so weird how that yeah. kind of comes together and i don't know i want to say i hate this movie kyle but it's hard to because there's other parts i don't what is it what is it about i this don't film? know i don't know why uh. this movie is is such a weird thing to try and talk around and about we're done here Anyways, the, the machine head said we have to wrap this up. Um, I really am interested in what rating you're eventually going to land on here, I Dave. I don't even know. I don't know. Uh, I do think we need to spend a little bit of time here with Critics' Choice first. So, both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kale did write about this movie. They both did not like this movie. Uh, so, they're kind of those the exceptions, I will say. Because, again, a lot of critics loved this movie at the time. First comes Roger Ebert. He says... Well, the hard thing to believe is that anyone could get drunk enough to get into that state of frenzy and still be sober enough to do anything about it. One or two guys, maybe, but half a dozen, as they hurt themselves against Hoffman's barricades, we realize that everything is a setup to allow more variety in the violence. And then the movie ends with the worst piece of pseudoscience understatement since Peyton Place left the air. After Hoffman has killed them all, he drives the idiot back to the village. I don't know where I live, the idiot says. That's all right, says Hoffman. Neither do I. What conclusions are we supposed to draw? The Hoffman that Hoffman achieved defeat and victory, that Peck and Paul believes in the concept of a just war, that drink drives men to the grave. The most offensive thing about the movie is its hypocrisy. It is totally committed to the pornography of violence, but lays on the moral outrage with a shovel. The perfect criticism of straw dogs already has been made. It's the wild bunch. So he's kind of equating the two movies that Peck and Paul has made. Um, by the way, I just want to point out um, uh, this reminded me. How many windows does this cottage have? Because it seems like they were constantly like, another crash, but crash, a crash. It's like, they've gone through like 12, 13 windows at this point. Like, how many more windows do they have? Can we also uh, just briefly acknowledge that these uh, drunken rapist assholes apparently are very good at construction? Because when they arrive at that cottage, I mean, there are walls missing. They can't even close some of the doors. And by the time they're coming in, it is a fortress, a windowed uh, fortress, yeah. but there's bars on every. I mean, it was like they were prepared for it. They had to pull off bars off of the exterior of the windows. Like, why are they even on there in an idyllic country town? But yeah, Ebert's right. There's something really stupid well, going on. Pauline Kale, um, I would really encourage anyone to go and read her entire essay on this movie. It is fantastic. I'm going to read a really long section, I will just say, <laughs> the, uh, because I think it's 
so great. I'm just going to um, lean back with my yeah, water. But the whole th- yeah, I know. You're going to have to. But the whole thing I would re- I recommend. So Peckinpah is a Spartan director this time, but with an aesthetic of cruelty. The only beauty he allows himself is in eroticism and violence, which he links by an extraordinary aestheticizing technique. The rape is one of the few truly erotic sequences on film, and the punches that subdue the wife have the exquisite languor of slightly slowed down motion. This same languor is present in the later slaughters. The editing is superb in these sequences, with the slowing down never prolonged, but just enough to fix the images of violence in your imagination, to make them already classic and archaic, like something you remember while they're happening. The rape has heat to it, there can be little doubt of that, but what goes into that heat is the old male barroom attitude. We can see that she's asking for it, she's begging for it, that her every no means yes. The rape scene says that women really want the rough stuff, that deep down they're little beasts asking to be made submissive. I think it's clear from the structuring of the film and the use of the mathematician to represent intellectuals out of touch with their own natures that his wife is intended to be representative of women's nature and the louts understand her better than her husband does. The first rapist understands what she needs. The sodomist Uh, terrorizes her. Another girl in the movie, the teenager who gets the gentle simpleton in trouble by making advances to him after David, the only other gentle person in town, rejects her, sustains the image of Eve the troublemaker. We know as we watch the teenager luring the simpleton that girls her age are not so hard up for boys to fondle them that they are going to play around with the village halfwit. We realize it's a plot device to get him pursued by the louts, but implicit in this recognition is that the movie is a series of stratagems to get the characters into the positions that are wanted for a symbolic confrontation. The siege is not simply the climax, but the proof, and it has the kick of a mule. What I am saying, I fear, is that Sam Peckinpah, who is an artist, has, with Straw Dogs, made the first American film that is a fascist work of art. I realize it's a terrible thing to say of someone whose gifts you admire that he has made a fascist classic. And in some way, Peckinpah's attitudes are not that different from those of Norman Mailer, who is also afflicted with machismo. But Mailer isn't so single-minded about it. He worries it and pokes at it and tries to dig into it. Despite Peckinpah's artistry, there's something basically grim and crude in Straw Dogs. It's no news that men are capable of violence, but while most of us want to find ways to control that violence, Sam Peckinpah wants us to know that that's all hypocrisy. He's discovered the territorial imperative and wants to spread the Neanderthal word. At its sanest level, the movie says no more than that a man should defend his home. But Peckinpah has not pushed this to a sexual test, but turned the defense of the home into a destruction orgy, as if determined to trash everything and everyone on screen. The fury, the fury goes way beyond making his point. It almost seems a fury against the flesh. The title has been extracted from a gnomic passage, Heaven, Earth, or Ruthless, and Treat the Myriad Creatures as Straw Dogs. The sage is ruthless and treats the people as straw dogs. That's no sage, it's a demon. Anyways, like I say, read the whole thing, but I think it is a really great breakdown. And I think she is struggling the same way we are. It's like, hey, I think this person is an artist, and he's making something that needs to be wrestled with. And at the same time, I hate the message this movie is trying to promote. You, you can't get away from your own demons, and mm-hmm. particularly in art. I mean, how can you express something if it isn't interpreted through your own brain? And right. uh, yeah, Kubrick was the same thing. There are thematic underscores in clockwork, which are important to discuss. You know, we see it, the world of ultraviolence and yeah. the impact of media and all of these pantomiming things. But his own perversion couldn't let him out of that shell. Uh, same with same with all the films that have been challenging. I, I think what's taking us aback, and maybe this is the thing that sterilized Hollywood 
is that we see so much form content now because they're trying to take that away. And we're trying to take away the inherent uh, bias that a person puts into their own work. And we label that as art house film. I don't know. I want to sound intelligent enough to say that <laughs> we can deal, like live here. And I know that a lot of modern critics and cinephiles and uh, pseudo whatever, you know, art intellectuals are going to say that they can. But how can you stomach shit like this? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not fun to, to sit through. That's if you sure. walked into somebody's house and they own this on Blu-ray, what would your first... <laughs> right? Well, like, what's your first impression be, now? Well, I will say, in some ways, it depends on what the other films are. If it's just like <laughs> one of like a big... There's many options of different films. But if it's like, you know, this and A Clockwork Orange and I'm trying to think of something else. I don't right. know. Kill Bill or something. Those are the three films you own on Blu-ray. I'm like... It's gonna grab my coat and I'm just gonna. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot um, of swords on the wall. Yeah. yeah. Do you think this holds up and is it still culturally relevant? That's the question we always ask. Yeah, it's a tough one. You know what sucks about, and this, I think this is why we're so upset. I think it's a yes and a yes. And I think mm. that it's frustrating because we want so desperately for it to be a no on many levels. We want, I think we, I'm gonna say, I shouldn't say we, but I think I don't wanna believe that people are still capable of doing this, but clearly we do this every day as human beings. Uh, I don't want to think that the brutal violence and the depiction of it are required, but I don't think anybody cares if you don't go this far anymore. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Avengers, uh, the last one, in the first 10 minutes, there's a beheading for a so-called family film. I mean, there's, there's no blood, but that's the level we're at now. It's so normalized. I would never voluntarily ask anyone to watch this film. Uh, but if someone, yeah, you have to prep someone, I think, yes. a little bit. I threw you under the bus a bit, but uh, no, I think you good. do have to prep people to be like, listen, this is not a easy watch that you're about to sit down for. Yeah, if you're not part of a project, you you know, I would never ask mm. someone to watch this. I, this will never be a family film, right? No. Um, but it's also something like we just had, a, I don't know how long we were recording, but we can't stop talking about this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. This is not a million dollar duck. Uh, and this <laughs> is right. done in 40 minutes yeah this is a film uh, that uh, i suspect we will talk about again like so many of these challenging films of this era so yeah i think i'm there with you it's like it's a resigned yes and yes like yeah like this still does hold up it still holds power and it's it's still indicative for so many people uh two of those people are number one production designer john muto specifically cited straw dogs as the inspiration for when he worked on home alone so yeah. he actually made up the house to be very similar to that. I mean, it's uh, there. At least the uh, ending. <laughs> oh, for sure. Director Jacques Odiard admitted that the film was essentially the basis for his 2015 film Deepon, which I actually I saw at the Calgary Film Festival a few years ago. And uh, it's very also very brutally violent at the very end. It takes a while to get there, but it's like the last 15 minutes is like it's ultra violent in the last 15 minutes. There was a remake of this movie back in 2011, so. Just to uh, very, very briefly, if you think back to those days, 2011, Dave, who is like the Dustin Hoffman of 2011? <laughs> who would you cast as a Dustin Hoffman of 2011? Probably Cyclops, if I had yeah, to pick. Yeah, uh, James Marsden comes to mind. <laughs> my, my issue is that Peter, the, he's, Peter Rabbit? he's too good looking and too muscular for yeah. this role, for what it involves. So I think he's kind of miscast. The one thing that I actually appreciate about the movie is it gives the wife way more agency. She's not just mm. like this prop. She's actually given a little bit of fight back into her. She calls out when he victim blames and slut shames her. She's like, uh, no, this is not going to happen. 
but it is PG-13, so it's like, as much as it, the, the beats kind of feel the same, it can't show as much, so it, it's this weird thing. And then it layers on all these other things to make the point even more muddled. I, I did not like this movie, I should point out, but... Like it's in the American South. He's a screenwriter. They bring religion into the into the topics here now. Uh, James Woods is like the awful drunk guy oh, wow. at the bar. So it's like perfect I mean, casting there. I yeah, guess. he's but, creepy, but yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's too muddled for me for that movie to to fully work. Uh, but however, I guess that does mean that we're time to rate this film. So that's what Dave and I thought. What did you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave VS the machine at gmail.com. I'm pretty sure when we make our YouTube videos, this is going to be a very commented upon movie. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterbox page, letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So Dave, what's the rating? What are you going to give it? I have no idea. This totally reminds me of Sweetback. I don't know, Kyle. I'm at such a loss. It is crafted well, but it's so upsetting. This uh, is like, this is where I feel like I feel like so stuck on this. And I, it took me a long time after watching it to even figure out what I wanted to rate it. So I'm doing like the Kyle pacifist approach, I guess, where I'm like literally right in the middle. I'm giving it a 2.5 is what I'm giving it because I didn't enjoy it, but I can't also deny that it affected me on a pretty deep oh. level. So there's something there. Yeah. I don't want to like it. <laughs> I, well, I don't know what that means right like yeah yeah did you like it i don't want to like it does that mean you liked it i don't think i liked it i i don't know uh, let's do yeah i'll stick with you i'll i'll do a cop out 2.5 because you know I, i'm looking forward at the end of the year for us to just do a a quick review of the year in film here because yeah. the longer we stay in this uh in this world the more i'm beginning to realize that these are important films right they had to be made yeah whether we like them or not this movie had to exist so right and then so <laughs> this is so hilarious it ties with three films that could not be more different than one another okay the andromeda strain <laughs> the omega man summer of 42 oh, is what it ties with honestly again i always go to that like a b is like if you told me, what would you rather watch, Straw Dogs or any of those three films, I honestly would say I'd probably want to watch any of those three films again uh, than to go through this experience. It just just to play the so-called devil's advocate, um, a straw dog argument. <laughs> that was my nickname in high school. Which is more uh, philosophically and psychologically demanding <laughs> and will likely yeah, stay true. in our brain longer. Yeah, Straw Dogs more more than any of those other three. Ugh. I don't know, Kyle. I don't know how to answer this question. I mean, well, this would you put it at the top, in the middle, or at the bottom? But that's the thing. It's contextual, right? It's like, yeah. Would I watch all three of those? Well, no, not. It's above Summer Forty Two. I, I, okay. I've forgotten half that film, so uh, I don't want to be I, be bored. I don't want to watch this film, but I'd rather not be bored. I don't know, Kyle. What's what's the right way to do this? Let's do this. I know that you really hate the Omega Man. I'm going to say, let's do this. Let's put it between those two. Underneath Andromeda Strain, okay. over top of Omega Man. 
it's oh man, I hate to say it, but this is gonna be like Sunday Bloody Sunday. It's gonna start climbing, <laughs> not because we like it, but it's just I, I it, we if we had watched this a few days ago, I mm -hmm. can't stop thinking about know. this it's... stupid movie. Well, currently then, at least, until we do our reorganization at the end of the year, entering our list at the number 17 position is Straw Dogs. Boy, do I hope we have something light and fluffy for next week, Dave, just to, as an aperitif, as you might say, as a little dessert mint. Let me push this button here. I actually don't know. We're going to be watching THX 1138. Oh, exciting. So, George Lucas's first movie, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. I actually... I know very little about this movie other than Robert Duvall is in it. That's oh. really all I know about this movie. I I only know that it exists by its name because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, THX then becomes the brand name for his, uh, he did the That's audio, right? right? Or sound. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I know nothing. I'm just excited because I, I think Star Wars is still an all-time great film. It still holds mm -hmm. up reasonably well. Uh, so that means this will not be good, but it'll uh, be fun well, to we'll watch. we'll talk about <laughs> it. We'll talk about it next week. We'll probably get into the conversation of like, why Star Wars also ruined George Lucas. <laughs> so, <laughs> once again. Um, all right, well, I'm excited for it. Oh, what is that? Uh, oh, my God, Dave. The, that, uh, the guy whose diamonds I stole, I mean, I, the, you know, borrowed. Uh, he's trying to get into the ship. Oh. Barricade what? yourself, Dave. Barricade I'm just going to unlock the door. No, no! Some of my best vacations were spent protecting the garrison.